The idea of living for the moment is a common one in our day, in our culture. We're told essentially do what seems right to you whenever, at whatever moment you're in. Do what seems right. Don't worry about what's next. Live for this moment. Live for now. It manifests itself in all kinds of different ways, certainly in relationships and romantic relationships, also in the fact that we just uh, rack up debt in order to own things that will give us pleasure now, right? Don't worry about how much you'll actually pay for that item. If you, you know, just get it now. You can enjoy it right this moment for just a few payments, low ones, we're told. We follow our heart, which leads into all manner of problems, all kinds of trouble. And people do this not with just with things like cars and, and with other people, but people do this with religion. People do this with Christianity, with the Lord himself. They want instant return. They want instant gratification, instant pleasure from this. This thing better give me something now. But as we come to Malachi 3, uh, verse 13, today, we're going to see a group whose undoing is in part due to the fact that they are not looking into the future. They're not looking far enough ahead. They are very short-sighted. They're looking at their present problem, their present scenario, and they're concluding, this isn't working. Uh, it's vain to serve the Lord. But... As we'll see, true servants of the Lord live in light of the end, in light of what is to come at the very end of human history as we currently know it. So turn with me to Malachi 3, verse 13, and we're going to look at how true servants of the Lord live life in light of the end. So here's the outline. Living in light of the end means that servants of the Lord, number one, do not use God for earthly gain. Secondly, servants fear the Lord no matter what comes their way. And thirdly, servants of the Lord remember the final reckoning and the promise of their future deliverance. Remember the final reckoning and the promise of their future deliverance. So number one, living in light of the end means the servants of the Lord do not use God for earthly gain. Now, as I talk about this, I want to be careful because there's obviously many wonderful benefits uh, and blessings to serving the Lord, even in this life, on this earth. Certainly that is true, but what I mean by using God uh, will hopefully be clear as we go here. So I invite you to read with me in Malachi 3, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> it says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say... How have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. In these verses we have now the final disputation of Malachi, this exchange between the Lord and his people, this uh, where the Lord brings up a charge, the people respond, what are you talking about? And then the Lord proves his point. This is the final one in Malachi. 
And the charge is that their words have been hard or strong against the Lord, that they've been harsh uh, and even blasphemous. That's what this, is, this charge is. This is followed by their, again, their ignorant denial. How have we spoken against you? What are you talking about? And the answer follows that the people have declared that it's vanity to serve God. It's emptiness. They say there's no profit in keeping his charge, in keeping his laws and obeying him. There's nothing to this. There's no profit in, in their mourning, that is in their calling out to him over their uh, present bad circumstances. This gains us nothing. They see no profit, but they repeat the charge that we've seen earlier, that God has changed, that he's unjust. Right? They say here, that the arrogant are now blessed of God. In verse 15, we call the arrogant blessed. They seem to prosper. And evildoers, they prosper. They're, they've got everything. They escape God's justice. And yet here we are with our failed crops. With We talked about this the other day. Uh, locusts, our failed crops. We're put down by our enemies. You can hear this claim. This is not working. For us. This doesn't work for us. They have it all together. This profits us nothing to worship the Lord, to be his people. Rather than pressing into the Lord in prayer, pressing into him in confession, uh, when these times are hard, they conclude he does not love us. If you'll remember, that's how the book began. That's how the book opened in chapter 1, verse 2. That was their first charge. This, this, they, they say the Lord does not love us. He has not loved us. This is evident to them. If the Lord's not going to prosper us as we would like, then what is the point of this? There's nothing to be gained by worshiping the Lord. It's vanity. It profits nothing to obey Him. He blesses the arrogant and the evil. He prospers. And yet He apparently opposes us because we're the ones downtrodden. So, indeed, these are, in fact, very harsh words against the Lord. They went through their you know, the motions of worship, they, as we've seen, they did bring animals to the temple. They kept this thing going, even though they were lame animals. They brought a portion of the tithe, though not the full tithe. They, they claimed to desire justice. Oh, God, where are you? Of, you know, this God of justice, where is he? We've seen all these things. But they do these things because they wanted God to do things for them. And when he didn't, well, they conclude he's unjust and not worth their time. They were using God for their own ends, for their own purposes. And how common this charge is today. I tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. A Google search, a quick Google search of that phrase will show endless articles with that title. Some by people who tried Christianity and left. And others by people trying to answer those who say they tried Christianity and left because this is just a very common idea, this common notion. People are often told even to try Jesus out in order to, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why people are tried to, told to try Jesus, to gain a better marriage, uh, to finally have a cleaned up life, to gain riches or to gain health or both of those things. 
People try out Christianity because they want divine aid in fulfilling their desires, their fleshly desires. They think divine favor will demand a raise at work. It will demand ease of lifestyle, rest from opposition. After all, uh, I'm doing things for the Lord. He's going to do these things for me. They think it, it demands favor from other people. They imagine it demands everything's going to work out just as they envision. It's going to result in an improvement in all these areas of life. Because after all, the Lord, He's on my side. So they expect, they just think everything's going to be fine. And so they enter into an analysis of, you know, what it's going to cost them and what benefits they're going to get from the Lord. Where they weigh the cost. So I'm going to have to give up a little bit of time on Sundays. But with the advent of the PVR, they don't need to miss much football. It might mean they give up a little bit of money. Maybe they'll have to clean up a few externals if they're going to fit in. Uh, but as long as they're getting something in return in this life, peace at home, you know, a, a good job that's secure, solid income, uh, as long as they're getting enough back, then, then, you know, they stay the course. But if the cost starts going up, my family despises me, my job disappears, I lose it. Other ill things befall. Then they declare it's not worth it. It's not worth it. What's, what profit is there in this? I do these things for the Lord and I get this in return? No thank you. What profit is there in this? Because fundamentally they're using God for what they can get out of Him now. It views God as someone or something to be useful to us. Now again, it's certainly true, certainly true, that life now is better for those who serve the Lord. And the scriptures even make this clear. As long as we view this through the right lens, it's okay to say this. So, for example, if we don't steal, which the Lord tells us not to do, if we don't steal then we don't need to fear fines for stealing. We don't need to fear jail. We don't need to fear the police showing up. We needn't fear a severed relationship over our act of taking something that didn't belong. We don't need to fear someone's payback. Police, we can instead have a clear conscience of these things. 1 Peter 3, he says if we keep our tongue from evil, then we're likely to see good days. And to see peace if we keep our tongue from evil. If we're not lashing out at people and talking ill of people, then you know it may just make sense that we're not going to be in as much conflict. There's a lot of just practical truth to that. All of these things are good. All of these things certainly help life now. There is peace to be had for those who are trusting in the Lord. But the Bible also teaches us to expect trial and to expect persecution. Even as Peter says these things in 1 Peter 3, and he quotes from the Psalms, when he talks about how if we would see good days to keep our tongue from evil, even as Peter says that, and even as he asks this question, he says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? In other words, if you're, if you're zealous to do what's good, people aren't going to line up to hurt you for that. Generally, that's true. But he does then acknowledge right after that that people do sometimes suffer for righteousness' sake, for doing what is good. 
The Bible's very clear on that. The Lord Jesus himself told us, if the world hated and persecuted him, then it would hate and persecute us as well. You see that John 15, 18. Jesus also declared that he brought a sword, indicating in its context in Matthew 10, that for many who follow Jesus, it would result in division among family and friends. So again, if you come and you think, oh, I'm going to go to church and then the Lord's going to make everything work out with my family, that's not promised. The Lord never promises that. In fact, Jesus declares it could very well be the opposite. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that everyone who wanted to live a godly life in Christ Jesus would be persecuted. The book of Job teaches us that righteous people sometimes suffer and that we don't always understand why Though we are told God is in control and to be trusted, notice Job's never told why. Really, it's just God is in control, and, and so be careful how you question him. You shouldn't just get on your, you know, sort of arrogant way and demand he answer you. No, he's in control is what he says, but he never really explains why Job went through what he did. But God is to be trusted. Paul tells us that if we are those who have hope in this life only, that if we're expecting good things in this life, that's our, our big hope, then we are to, above all to be most pitied above others. Why? Because Paul and, and, and other Christians of his day and Christians today are oppressed and are persecuted and are downcast and the scum of the earth. And so, as Paul says, if, if their hope, if our hope is in this life only, then that's pathetic. What hope is this? Because we are cast aside by the world. We're despised by men, by people. Our lives appear miserable if our hope is in this life only. And so if we use God for earthly gain, if that's what we think this is about, if that's why we want the Lord, that's why we want to come to church, because He's going to advance us in this life, we will be disillusioned when trials come. Because He's never promised us just advance and everything's going to be fine in this life and there will be no trouble. He's never made those promises. He's promised much the opposite. Trials will come. And so we need to be, to make sure we are on guard against using God like a genie, coming to him that he might give us our, our earthly desires. We must beware making demands of God about things that he's never promised. And sometimes this is subtle, um, but it can reveal itself by thinking that we need X, you know, whatever that is, you fill in the blank. We need something in order to truly be happy, in order to truly worship Him. If, if, if I just had that house, then I would be happy and would, would be satisfied and worship the Lord. If I just had more money, if I just had the right retirement plan, if I just had a spouse, or if I only had that job, or if I just had blank, then I would worship the Lord then I would be satisfied. This is how this sometimes can manifest itself in us. None of those things are required of us in order to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And having that mentality is a sure way to end up at a place where you conclude when things go wrong, 
What profit is there in this? This gains me nothing. Why serve him? It's not working. I'm not getting what I want out of this. But such an attitude is to live life in the present. To live life in the present and not to live in light of the end. And that's what these people are doing here that the Lord rebukes. They want him to do certain things for him now. They don't see their sinfulness before the Lord. We've covered that lots throughout this book. Uh, And instead, they, they just want God to do things for them. And they are rebuked here for that. These are harsh words against him. And so we need to guard against that. And if that's why you have come to the Lord in the first place, you want him so that you can get something out of him, then you need to repent of that. So living in light of the end means that servants of the Lord do not use God for our own earthly means. Secondly, means servants of the Lord fear the Lord no matter what comes their way. Fearing the Lord no matter what comes their way. Read verse 16 with me. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So we have these people who are contrasted with those that are rebuked. So who, who are these people? There, there is a remnant. These are, this is a remnant of people from within the Israelite community who did not go along with the hard, wearying words of others, of the majority of the people. We know, we're told here, they feared the Lord, and they esteemed His name, it says. We're also told they spoke with one another. We don't know exactly what it is they said, uh, but presumably it would seem that they heard Malachi's words, perhaps all of the words of, of this book even, They've heard Malachi's prophecies and they've gathered together to encourage one another toward faithfulness. We see that whatever it is they said, the Lord viewed it favorably, which we'll see more in a moment, but right there in verse 16, he he paid attention, heard them, and, and wrote this book of remembrance. A couple more things about this group of people that I think are helpful They live in the same world as those who accuse the Lord and speak blasphemously against Him. Right? The same world as those who see no profit in worshiping Him. They too suffer from failing crops. They too would have suffered from the plague or the the destroyer that had come and destroyed the crops, the locusts. They've suffered from drought. They too were subject to the Persians. They too were subject to attacks from enemies around them. They too could look out and see that the Messiah has not come and that there's much more to what God has promised than what they were experiencing at that time. They too would have been tempted to doubt God and His promises. And yet they come to a very different conclusion though they live in this exact same world. Rather, they fear the Lord and esteem his name. In John chapter 6, 
We read of, of people there who had eaten a miraculous meal of multiplied bread and fish uh, the previously, previous day. So you remember the feeding of the 5,000. This, this these people had experienced that. The next day, uh, they tracked down Jesus and were told in verse 15, they desired to make him king by force. So they're looking for him in order to make him king by force. We're told. And Jesus says to them this. He says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So the people saw Jesus as useful to their immediate needs, and that's why they wanted him. They didn't see the bread and fish miracle as a sign that this is the Messiah, this is Jesus Christ, that they should uh, repent of their sin, they should follow after him. They didn't see this as a display of his divinity and his power. They see this as a useful man who can fill my needs, who can give me food. That's what Jesus says. You, you seek me because you ate your fill of the loaves. As Jesus taught them spiritual truths in John chapter 6, they complained and eventually they left him because of this, quote, hard teaching. They left him. They move along. This is the attitude of the people in Malachi's day. He's useful to us, but if he's not, if he's not going to do what we want and his teaching is hard, then it's not worth it. We're out of here. But in John 6, there was another group as well in that same crowd. And Jesus turned to his 12 disciples and he asked them, do you want to go away too? So all these disciples leave him after he's not going to give them the food they want. And his teaching is hard. Do you want to go away too? And Peter answers him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We know Peter didn't understand everything there was to know about the Lord. We see him and we joke about him as being kind of bumbling and uh, sort of proud and, and, and foot in his mouth various times. And so we, we know he didn't get everything, but he understands in John chapter 6, I have nowhere else to go. This might be hard, but I have no one else to turn to. You are the Holy One of God. Those who truly serve the Lord fear and esteem Him no matter what comes. Whether, like Daniel, you rise to prominence or whether, like Paul, you suffer calamity after calamity and betrayal after betrayal. If you recall his letter to 2 Timothy, he's been betrayed by so many people and left basically alone. This is near the end of his life. But even if that's the case, is the Lord, the Lord of hosts, is he not? Yahweh, the Lord of Angel armies, is the Lord not the creator of all things? Is the Lord not the judge of all the earth? Is he not all wise? Is he not just? Is he not good? Is he not worthy of our fear and our awe in all seasons of life? Is he not in control 
even when we can't see it. Remember Habakkuk as we were in Habakkuk? He didn't really see it. In fact, even after God says he's in control, he says, it's like rottenness in my bones. The truth, God's in control, but his situation is still dark and difficult, and it's hard on him, and it's inwardly wrenching to him. It's hard, and yet, you'll recall his declaration of praise, that even if there is no olives on the tree, there is no fruit to be had, yet I will praise the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord, because he is, after all, the Lord. He is indeed worthy of our worship in all seasons of life. He's God. We are not. We don't know. We don't fully understand his ways. But do not make the mistake of condemning him when things don't seem to go your way. That's part of what the Lord reminds Job of. Where were you when I created the world? We have such a narrow view, such a small perspective on life and everything. We think we know a lot, but our view is very narrow. I have lived almost 34 years on this earth. That's not a long time compared to the Lord. 80 years is still not a long time compared to the history of the world. Our perspective is limited, but the Lord understands and knows all. Let us not be short-sighted, but remember, we will stand before him one day. Some of us might worry about how it is we'll respond when bad news comes our way. When these dark seasons of the soul come upon us, some of us worry about how we will respond. Will I have faith to stand? We hear of people who go through great trial, and their testimony is strong in the Lord, and we think, hmm. I wonder if that would be me. But again, let us remember what the Lord told Job. We weren't there when he founded the world. Remember, we don't instruct God as to right and wrong, how he should or shouldn't be treating us or running things. We don't have the full picture in front of us, and so we are to mind our place. And if you wonder how it is you would, you would get through this, or perhaps you've, I mean, maybe you've even come through this. Some of you have come through these dark seasons, and some of you might even be in these dark seasons right now and wonder, how will I get through? Or I barely survived the last dark season, or I'm barely hanging on now. Well, that might be true, but I would remind you, you are holding on even if it seems by a thread. With Peter, you know you have nowhere else to go, even though you lack understanding of why this trial has settled on you. And as Spurgeon said, care more about a grain of faith than a ton of excitement. So yes, perhaps everything's not really amazing and you're just, just so excited about everything and you, you can't stand yourself, you're so excited. But you have a grain of faith that's kept you through this. Is that not the Lord sustaining you? And if you're wondering how you'd respond when that trial comes, instruct your soul now while the sun shines upon you. 
that the Lord is worthy to be feared, no matter what comes. That He is not, in fact, your personal genie. That He is not there to make everything just work out just so, just fine. Instruct yourself in good theology of the Lord. Know that He disciplines those whom He loves. And He does this to rip, you know, pry open your fingers off of that which we tend to cling to in this life. That we might be further sanctified and further trusting in Christ. If you wonder if you would possibly get through a difficult circumstance, look to the Lord who says He will keep and fin- keep those He saves and finish the work He begins in you. Our hope that we survive crisis and difficulty is our hope in the Lord, is the fact that He is sovereign. He is able to save even weak people like us. And we need not worry if we would have faith in those moments, uh, but look to the Lord and trust that He will sustain us with the faith we need to get through that trial. And even if, again, you're in that moment now or in that trial now and you're hanging on by a thread, just keep looking to Christ. Keep holding on to Him. Stand with Peter and repeat His words. To whom else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. Living in light of the end means that servants of the Lord fear the Lord whatever comes, whatever comes, because we are looking toward the end. And we see that here uh, clearly in these final verses. And so number three in your outline, living in light of the end means the servants of the Lord remember the final reckoning and the promise of their future deliverance. Let's read 16 again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So as those who feared the Lord gathered and spoke with one another, we're told that the Lord paid attention, he heard them, and that he had a book of remembrance written before him on behalf of those who feared his name. If you were here on Wednesday when we went through Esther, uh, then you'll remember that King Ahasuerus had a book kept uh, that recorded deeds that were done. This included in Esther uh, the, the good deed of Mordecai who, who warned him uh, of this assassination plot against his life. That's the picture that, that this gives us, what, what we just read, this book of remembrance, that God is keeping records. There are numerous places in the scriptures that speak of a book that contains these records, contains records. There's the, in, and we're probably most familiar with the Lamb's Book of Life. We see in numerous places this idea of the Book of Life. Uh, we know from Revelation 13 it was written before the foundation of the world and that it has the names of uh, His children, the righteous, the redeemed in it. I don't think that's what is being referred to here, though it's possible, but because that book's written before the foundation of the world, we're told. 
We also see books that have deeds and actions written in them. We see that in Revelation 20, 12, and 15. On there, um, we see that these books will be brought out with the book of life at the final judgment, and that people will be judged on what's in these books. And it seems that's what this is. That's what this book of remembrance is. But regardless of exactly what it is, this book of remembrance here, the, the point of it is that God will remember this. He's going to remember what just happened. These people who feared him, they gathered together, uh, they're committed to him, they're serving him, they're esteeming his name. He says he will remember that. He's not going to forget. He's keeping a record. He's keeping an account of it. More sure than any Persian king's record is the Lord's book. He knows those who are his. He knows those who are not his. He knows the deeds and actions and thoughts of all men and women. And he will not forget these things. And particularly for those who feared the Lord, this is to be an encouraging thing for them. He's not going to forget this. He remembers this. And he says in verse 17 that these people will be his when he makes up his treasured possession. In Exodus 19.5, God called Israel his treasured possession. Likewise, in 1 Peter 2.9, the church is his possession, a people for his own possession. God is gathering for himself a people out of sinful humanity to be his own. And he's not done with that work yet. This verse refers to when he completes that process, on that day, these people who feared the Lord in Malachi's time will be part of his treasured possession. They will be his. They will be saved. He's written in his book, it's going to happen. He will not forget. He will spare them, he says. And he says that he will make on that day a very clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not serve God. And again, this happens ultimately in the end at the final judgment when believers are vindicated and receive the outcome of their salvation and when the wicked receive justice. Let's keep reading into chapter 4 and see this even more clearly as he describes that day. 4 verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. First, we see here in verse 1 that the arrogant, these, the, the arrogant and the evildoers that the people in Malachi's day have said that the Lord blesses and prospers back in uh, verse 15, which we started with. Remember, uh, he calls the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper. Well, here we're told that the arrogant and the evildoers will in fact be made stubble. This verse is a shockingly awful verse. A terrifying verse. 
The day of reckoning that is coming is a day that is burning like an oven. And the wicked will not escape, but will be set ablaze, it says, with no root or branch spared. Meaning, it will be final, it will be complete. When that day is done, there will be no more wicked. There will be no more arrogance. It will be punished most severely by God. This is heavy, very heavy truth. This verse speaks of hell and the fact that there will be a final reckoning from which sinners will not escape. Our greatest need as sinners is not for earthly pleasures, not for earthly gains. We don't need a God that is going to just give us what we want on this earth. We need a God that will make us right with Him. We need God to forgive us of our sins. We need God to deal mercifully and gracious with us, or we too will be stubble. We need to be made right with the Lord of hosts to escape His judgment for our sins. That is our greatest need. And notice that there is hope as well. For those who fear the Lord, he says, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Righteousness here is depicted as a sun. As the sun rises, it's depicted as a sun that brings healing and warmth. You, you've probably experienced that kind of a sunrise. That imagery is helpful. The warmth and the healing that it brings. The Lord says that will happen to those who fear the Lord. And it's in contrast to the burning fire that destroys the wicked in verse 1. What is being described here in the Son of Righteousness is that on the last day, righteousness will shine forth like the sun, and for those who are part of the Lord's treasured possession for His people, it will bring with it vindication, it will bring with it triumph, complete healing from sin, healing from everything. 1 Corinthians 15 will have renewed bodies that will not decay, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more disease. All the effects of sin will be overturned. Many have rightly said this is a prophecy concerning Christ, concerning Jesus. He is the one who brings this about, who brings this healing. And I would agree With that, since it is through Christ Jesus that sinners receive forgiveness and grace from God. It's through Him. He's the one who can make us right with God. He is the light of the world. He is the one whose glory will light up the new heavens and new earth. And on the last day, God's righteousness will be on display for all to see. And God promises those who fear Him that He would remember them and that they would one day be completely healed, completely made new and right. We are justified by God through faith now, but we await the completion of our salvation on that final day 
And he will be righteous to bring about healing for his people because Jesus died for the sins of his people on the cross and rose again from the dead. And this is how it is that the Lord can forgive some. He doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. Jesus pays for it. Romans 3, 21 to 26 explains how that works. It makes God just and able to justify wicked people. And the result of this, this final vindication, this righteousness in the end that will bring about healing, the result of this healing, for those who serve the Lord, they will leap like calves from the stall. That's the other picture given here. A picture of carefree celebration, a picture of freedom, no more cooped up, but being set free. He says that they will tread down the wicked. That is, they'll have victory. We'll have victory over all our enemies. The enemies of the Lord, he says, will be like ashes. And notice again, all of this will happen on the day when I act, says the Lord. This is pointing to the final day of the Lord. So verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4 speak of judgment for one group and deliverance for another. Vindication for that group. And again, these realities will come to pass on the final day at the end. And this is no doubt these verses are meant to uh, lead sinners to repentance, to be shocked by the reality of God's coming judgment and justice, that they might escape the day of wrath, and it is meant to encourage the ones who serve the Lord. In this day and age, many may claim to serve the Lord, but on that day, he says, a clear distinction will be made. Perfect justice will make it clear. You've probably heard the phrase um, in political, in social, moral arguments, the claim um, that's you know, fr from someone saying that they're, they want to be on the right side of history. You've probably heard that, that claim. It's a common refrain which says that those who disagree with my position will one day be viewed like we view the Nazis. You know, the Nazis were on the wrong side of history. Those who endorsed the slave trade were on the wrong side of history. That's how pe people argue. I want to be on the right side of history. It will be the Lord who makes it clear who is on the so-called right side of history. One day it will be made very plain. He says that here, a clear distinction. There are many blessings that come from trusting in the Lord in this lifetime. There's joys to be known, even in trial. And there are blessings to be had. But at the heart, we are told to come to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. To be reconciled to God. To be made right with Him. That we might escape the coming wrath of God against sin and against sinners. And if you have not done that, this is the day. If you came to the Lord for other reasons, you've come to Him so that He might give you other things, that He might perhaps improve your life, you've come to Him for whatever other reasons, you need to repent of that and come to the Lord to be reconciled to Him, confessing your sin before this righteous and holy God who has 
a perfect record of right and wrongs and knows all of your thoughts and deeds and will one day expose those things. Come to Him now, confess those things to Him, call out to Him for forgiveness and for grace and mercy. And for those of us who've done that, who recognize our great need for our, our sins to be wiped clean and forgiven by the Lord, we need to live in light of that day. Live this day, this life, in light of what is to come. Trusting by faith that we are sinners, that Jesus died and rose again to save sinners like us. Trusting that we will one day stand before God, and our only hope on that day is to have the righteousness of Christ granted to us by God's grace through faith. If we are focused on that, if we live this life in light of that day, We will not be asking, what is the profit in this, when things don't go our way. We will not survey our difficult circumstance and say, this is vanity. That's not to say difficulty doesn't come. That's not to say it doesn't feel overwhelming a lot of the time. That's not to say it's not hard to go through trials. But if we are living in light of that final day, then we will join with Peter and declare we have nowhere else to go, though I am crushed in this lifetime. If you're tempted to feel that way, to feel like this doesn't profit me, Remember the final reckoning when mankind stands before our Maker. Remember the final deliverance of those who are in Christ when we will leap like calves out of the stall. It's a funny illustration to think of it. But that's a picture of joy. We like newborn animals. They're cute. They leap around. It looks like fun. That's the picture we're given of our final deliverance. No more worry, no more care about sin, no more being crushed by sin, being granted new bodies that don't deteriorate, being completely and finally done with sin forever, like the Lord, with those whom the Lamb has redeemed out of this world. Remember that, cling to that hope, and persevere through the trial you face now, or the trial that's around the corner. All of this stuff we have, and we have many great things from the Lord that we should rejoice in. Rejoice in your house, rejoice in your, the fact that you have a job, rejoice in your spouse, in your children. All these things are gifts from the Lord. But all of this, at some point, could crumble. But nobody can snatch you from your Savior's hand. Cling to Him now. If the sun's shining on you, cling to Him in your greatest trial, in your hour of need. Jesus is your only hope now. He's your only hope tomorrow. He's your only hope ever. 
when things are great and easy and light, and when things are incredibly heavy. Servants of the Lord do not use God like a genie, but are those who fear the Lord and esteem his name, whatever comes, living this day, our lives now, in light of our future deliverance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are sinners and we are grateful that you have made a way for sinners to be forgiven. I pray that every person here would repent of their sin and would know Christ as Savior, that we would all one day be there as we leap like calves from the stall, that we would see each other through by your grace to, that, to the end of our race, whether you return or whether you call us home, whatever comes first. God, encourage us this day, Lord, and as we face difficulty and trial, and Lord, we, we know in this room right now there are people in dark and difficult places, and I pray that you would encourage them, that you would help them to remember Christ, that they would not look, just look inwardly to find strength, but that they would look to Jesus and that their great hope would be that they have a wonderful Savior who saves and keeps his people. I pray that you would encourage us. And Lord, for those of, for those of us here who are in a, a, a joyful place now where joy is easy, we just thank you and give you praise for that wonderful blessing. Thank you for those days. And may we not make the mistake of thinking it's somehow because we are righteous in and of ourselves. And may we not make idols of those things, but may we just praise you for your blessings and give thanks to you. Lord, you are good. We thank you for your salvation, for being merciful to us. We pray you would encourage our hearts now and through this week. Bless the rest of our time as we continue to fellowship around dinner together. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.